By the time you or I were eight years old, most experts say that we already had a grasp of about 10,000 words in our vocabulary. By the time we reach adulthood, they say it ranges somewhere between 20 and 35,000 words in our vocabulary. I crunched some more numbers on what they had all talked about in terms of the volume of words that we speak. And if we all live to the average life expectancy, the average American will speak somewhere close to half a billion words in their lifetime. Half a billion. Five years ago, they found a growth, a tumor on my tongue. And I remember going in as soon as the school year ended, wondering if it was all going to be fixed before the fall started and I'd start preaching again. And I remember really well going in to surgery that day and thinking, like, what if something goes wrong and I don't ever speak again? Like, not in the same way I have. I mean, part of me wondered because I haven't actually learned any other gifts. I don't know what I would do for a living. But I remember thinking, like, I, I could still pray in tongues. I could do that, but only the Lord would understand me and nobody else would understand me anymore. And have I said everything that I wanted to say? They write songs to talk about things like live like you are dying. We also need to speak like we're running out of words. Because by the time this message is done, the volume of which I will have spoken, of words themselves will be that much less now in the season of my life. And words are such powerful things. With them we speak over people and we create identities. Whenever my wife Nicole is talking about writing, she talks about the fact that as a child, her dad would introduce her to strangers and say, this is my little daughter Nicole, one day she's going to be a published author. And she got to like live into this thing of this positive speaking over her life. You and I get the beauty of getting to come before the word of God to continually be shaped by its truth. To have an identity claimed over us and spoken over us again and again and again. And those words create and recreate us. Those words created the world and the ground that we stand on. Those words will speak, it is finished, it is done one more time when it all wraps up. Bombs might fall during wars, but it's words that start them. And sign peace treaties that end them. Words truly are powerful. Only more so when the word becomes flesh. Makes its home among us. As it did. I bet if I were to ask every one of you here to give me a positive time in your life where someone spoke something to you, um, a word of encouragement, a word of strength that has just filled your sails and, and made your chest swell and you felt good about who you are. I bet if I were to ask each one of you, was there a moment in life where somebody insulted you and hurt you and cut you so deep? An insult you heard on the playground as a child. Words that hurt and cut and shaped you and also misshaped your identity. I'm sure you could tell me powerful stories. This is what James is getting at in chapter 3 of his letter, verses 9 to 12, and he talks about what it is that our words can do. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth, 
come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. You and I are always kind of speaking with a forked tongue out of both sides of our mouths. With a duplicity that comes from the old person we are and the new creation we are becoming in Christ. Sometimes in the same breath. We've been talking all semester about why they're leaving and why it matters. Why it is that people now seem to be living, leaving the church, leaving organized religion, leaving the Christian faith at higher rates than ever before we've known in this country. And in all the surveys that get asked, one of the answers that always comes back at the top of why people are leaving is because of hypocrisy amongst the church, amongst Christians. That they say one thing and then do another. Or they say one thing and then they say something else to contradict it. And there's an inconsistency found in our words. There's an inconsistency that's found between what we say and what we do. And how compelling our hypocrisy is, is always determined by how great the chasm is between, the distance between what we say and what we do and how we live. It's one thing to learn how to sing and how to speak Christianese. It's altogether different to talk about how to love like that. You see, at the end of the day, it's not the mind of God that we get to know so well, so much as His love. The central symbol of the Christian faith that we come back and put before us in times like Lent remind us We didn't choose a thought cloud. Not our ability to think God's thoughts after him so profoundly or to get our minds all the way around it, but it was a demonstration of his love. Perhaps this is what the church and your and my lives need to find again. A beautiful wooing, invitational and compelling way of living out gospel where the truth starts to speak loudly in our lives. Because it's not going to be found when those go looking for it so much in churches, but in you and I. In a culture that's increasingly distancing itself from church. The great St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Maybe what we're going to have to remind ourselves as the American church today is that preach the gospel And if necessary, use pulpits. Your life will be that platform more more often than not. And you and I are going to have to reconcile this difference of hypocrisy for the world around us. And you see, it won't come through being able to speak loud more loudly. It will come through being able to speak and love more boldly. You can search the Gospels over, but Jesus never argued anybody into the kingdom of heaven. He loved them in. And we have to acknowledge the fact that it's often been our words and our actions and the disconnect between these that have caused so much division, that have caused people to leave. One of the books I'm reading 
This semester is a, a book by Dr. Gregory Boyd, one of my favorite preachers, on a book called Letters from a Skeptic. Fourteen years after becoming a believer, he asked his 70-year-old father, can we start dialoguing about the fact that you don't believe in Christ? And I, what I want you to do is tell me all of your reasons why, and I'll try to answer your questions. And a beautiful dialogue ensues, and at the end of the day, he actually does become a believer. But in their first exchange, this is some of what his father says. You invited me to raise whatever objections come to mind, so I'll jump right in. Here's one I've wondered about a lot. How could an all-powerful and all-loving God allow the church to do so much harm to humanity for so long? Isn't this supposed to be his true church? His representation on earth? So I'm wondering, where was God when the Christians were slaughtering the Muslims and Jews, women and children included, during the Holy Crusades? Why did God allow his people to burn almost the entire population of Jewish unbelievers in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition? Why would an all-loving God allow the church to take part in something like the Holocaust? At best, it looked in the other direction. And do all these things in his name. Well, you wanted an objection. You've got one. I look forward to your response. Give my love to Shelley and the kids. Can you and I answer these questions like this that will be coming from our culture again and again and again? And as more people choose to leave the faith and choose to come into it, I can't help but wonder if it's the strength and, and obnoxiousness of our hypocrisy that continues to cause some of that void. Our inability to live in the middle of tension. You see, so often we want words that are already resolved. And we want to portray a Christian faith that has often figured things out. And that's why we say things before the rest of our life has often gotten there. And it's true that often our theology will precede our behavior and our discipleship. That I understand. But when that divorce becomes so big, our message actually doesn't get accentuated. It becomes diminished. I had an anguished conversation with a Dort graduate last week. In frustration, they told me how two of their siblings have now left the Christian faith because of its inability to reconcile the questions they were asking about science and what they knew about faith. And they felt like the church kept telling them, if you go down that road and allow that to influence your thought at all, you're simply entering into a slippery slope. Have you heard that term before? Slippery slope. Like it or not, we're all moving somewhere. This third rock from the sun that you're standing on is moving at 67,000 miles an hour. It may not be the slipperiest of slopes. Well, it kind of is today, actually, outside if you're walking around. But... <laughs> but let's be honest with ourselves. We were put in a world that is moving at incredible rates in a universe, a multiverse. It's expanding continually. It's moving beyond what we can comprehend. Our goal has never been to be able to figure out the mind of God, put it down and summarize him in a collection of doctrines, but rather to come before him in awe and mystery and worship. And yes, with great pursuit to try to learn these great mysteries with all that we can, with all the faculties that we've been given. Yes, those are beautiful, beautiful pursuits that you give your life to as a college student and hopefully beyond and for the rest of your days. 
But the truth is, in all of this, what we need to understand is that our hypocrisy will always sound loud to others when we believe and when we portray that our pursuit of, of truth is something that is static. Friends, truth is not static. Earlier this year, I listened to an amazing sermon, one of my favorite preachers, Erwin McManus, and a sermon entitled, Is Truth Dead? And he contrasted these two things, and and it was helpful for me in my understanding. He he quoted a, a great Italian physicist, Marco Rovelli, who said that all of us, at the end of the day, we really actually want truth to be like a stone, something we can go all the way around, something we can hold, sometimes we can even throw at people if we really want to. He said, but the truth is, the truth isn't like a stone. It's more like a kiss. It changes you from the inside out. One of the questions the church is going to have to reconcile is, is our faith, faith in our faith, or is our faith, faith in a God? Is our faith resting in our own mind's ability to uh, summarize enough things and, and resolve them enough that we feel like we're living in a place of comfort? Or is our faith built from a place of mystery and awe and worship? The ready acknowledgement that God already is bigger than we are. That I, I need to spend my life trying to figure him out with all that I am. I'm called to love him with all that I am. But I'll never get my thoughts all the way around it. And I need to proceed in all of these conversations in in humility. The conversation with that Dork graduate kept going. They were so afraid that if they entered into a new space in this conversation about science and faith, that they would give something up that they would never be able to get back. And I feel like we've done that as the church for so long. We've said, we figured this out. Here's our line in the sand. And I know what you want to say. Aaron, you can't say that because as soon as you say that there isn't these things, then what are the absolutes? But what I want to do is push the conversation not about absolutes of the thoughts that we think, but the person that we think them about. We continue to talk about truth as, it's some, as if it's something that we can contain in a collection of doctrines. One of my favorite things about the Reformed tradition is that when it sat down to write its catechisms, it did it in organization of questions. It thought about the best questions that you could ask God and then laid them all out. Our culture is offering us a catechism of questions again. What do you do about God in this, the problem of evil? What about when science teaches us this new thing? What about, what about... What about? We want to have all the answers all neat and tidy on the front end. But what if we can't have all of them? And what if it's the awe and the mystery and the person of God that's going to be more compelling than the resolution of our thoughts? What if discipleship isn't about resolution? What if it's about tension? Every day waking up to die again to yourself. Every day waking up again to realize that I am the old creation or the old person and the new creation all at the same time. That this side of glory, I don't get to have all of this, these things resolved. That maybe in heaven we get to just sit at God's feet and ask all the questions we all had about how he did this and how he did that and how he did this. And maybe our minds are blown again, but we just simply don't have the imagination. We don't have the capacity to be able to figure that all out now. 
And so I ask you this question, American church, is God a collection of knowable truths? A collection of doctrines, spiritual data points? Or is God really just the encounter that's supposed to keep changing you forever? How do I know that truth is dynamic? How could I say something like that so audaciously? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth is not some objective thing that we get to pursue. Truth is someone who wraps his arms around us. Whose thoughts are above my thoughts, whose ways are above my ways, whose love I can't even begin to fathom. That is truth. Truth personified in the person of Christ who gave his life that I wouldn't have to have all these things figured out. That I wouldn't have to perform, that I wouldn't have to get it all together because he would do all of that for me. And this, friends, is grace. I am the way and the truth and the life. I don't have to know all things. I get to know the one who made all things, who will finish all things, who started all things, who will wrap this story up. I don't have to find my own path in life because he is the way and has paved it for me. I don't have to muster up a life for myself because he died to give me one that I could never create. And it is the same when it comes to the truths of the universe. And so we need to ask ourselves not, can we stand in a place where we pretend before the world like we've got this all figured out? Or can we just stand before the world and just say, I know who to point to when I don't get it? Because I think that a faith that is more built on that will be more inviting and allow people to sit in the tension of suffering in the world and the questions that they have unanswered and the deep things that are supposed to draw us to him and not push us away. Marco Rovelli closed it like this. He says, there are frontiers where we are learning and our desire for knowledge burns. They are in the most minute reaches of the fabric of space, at the origins of the cosmos, in the nature of time, in the phenomenon of black holes, and in the working of our own thought processes. Here, on the edge of what we know, in the contact with the ocean of the unknown, shines the mystery and beauty of the world, and it's breathtaking. And it's breathtaking because it's Christ. It's Christ whose words spoke those things into existence. It's Christ whose words uphold and sustain them. I don't know how it all works. But I know the one who works it. And I will rest there. And I think that we need to bank on using our words in our culture today to be able to point to that place. For it will be our humility and not our pride that will draw others to Christ. It will be our wonder and our mystery and not our certainty that will invite them into faith. In a world that they can't always understand and fathom, but in the one who holds it. That is our constant invitation. To say we have anything else figured out, I would argue, is pride. But it is humility that takes us back to the cross and back to the one who made all things. Praise team, if you guys can come on up and help lead us in song, we'll sing about that to close. And you join me in prayer.
Father, take us back again and again to mystery, to worship, to humility, to awe and wonder, to faith like a child. Kill whatever places of pride exist within us where we think we have you all figured out. And God, we know as we keep pointing towards truth, it's you who convicts, it's you who gives us a firm foundation. Teach us well how to live in a world that is changing so dramatically all around us where nothing is static to be able to show that you, you are truth, you are dynamic, your arms keep reaching, your love keeps sweeping, you cannot stop enfolding people, calling them, calling all creation back to yourself through the work that is done for us on the cross. Father, we thank you for the life that is ours in you and only because of you. Teach us that the way that we seek, the truth that we seek, and the life that we seek is and always has been only found in you. And then give us words to speak the same to others and over them. Words of invitation and confession of testimony and evangelism. To invite your ever-expanding story, that mo more of them would speak it to. In the name of the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus we pray, amen.